We're going to the party. We're going to the game. We're going to the disco. Ain't gonna cruise out, man. We're stealing people's mail. 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 On a Friday night. Driving in the mountains. Riding around, around. Run to your mailboxes. Take your mail back to town. And we got the business when it gets back to church. Checks about like just truck makes it burn. Money, bills, and fancy checks. Pretty funny pictures of your kids gonna steal your we're starting. We're starting. So, hello, everybody. We're just evolving into Bostonian accents. <laughs> I don't know why for this particular episode, but okay. Reasons. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The FBI. Boston seems associated with bootlickers a lot, so like, <laughs> you know, it tracks. <laughs> we just, wow, we just lost the entire <coughs> city of Boston. Well, I hate the Celtics, so I'm not really upset about that. <laughs> now we definitely lost. Oh, well. <laughs> I, I am neutral in this. Anyway, hi. Welcome back. Yeah. Um, so, I do, yeah, it's been a while, and I don't want to point the fingers, but it's entirely Lindsay's fault. No. It, well, I'm kidding. Hmm. It's a joke. It was a mix of, uh, like, you guys know how it is. Life gets busy. Also, COVID makes things and, complicated. Yeah, and, like, we had a spike in COVID cases in Alberta, so we're kind of doing our best to be careful, and now... It's been difficult to uh, to manage. I had to man. I had to isolate man for a while. It was yeah. It was a time. Yeah, there was that, and so. then so we're back now. And uh, hopefully we'll be a little more regular coming up. With yeah, our next episodes for sure. Summer's coming to a close. Things are winding down. So let's jump into it. So today we we're <clears throat> continuing our our trend of topical, you know, yeah. historical. Unlike the. 1918 pandemic we did not plan this ahead we decided to do this on the spur of the moment kind of do this one because of how topical it is now with the black lives matter movement resurgence in the wake of the tragic deaths of uh, black people at the hands of police it was interesting doing this because i was worried that we weren't going to have a lot of information and then lo and behold i'm having an easier time researching this than the fucking 1918 flu pandemic (laughs) Yeah, it turns out there's significantly more information about this shit. (laughs) It's called COINTELPRO, and it was a program started by the one and only. Jay Edgar. So for some sort of context, I guess, on this program, when we think of America in the 1950s, uh, there's a lot of images that come to mind. There's the rapid rise of suburbia and nuclear families, you know, the white picket fence and cars, stay-at-home moms, etc., the emergence of pop culture icons like Elvis, the election of Eisenhower, and of course, McCarthyism and the Red Sec- well, the Second Red Scare, but really the, just the fear of communism in general. So the Second Red Scare occurred at the end of World War II, as there was generally an increased fear of communism and espionage that coincided with the rising tensions between the Soviet Union and the US. The USSR was in the process of occupying more and more territory in Eastern Europe at the end of the war, and that combined with then the outbreak of the Korean War, and also the confessions of spying for the USSR by a number of high-ranking US government officials really, you know, tipped people into a, a state of, it wasn't really panic, but it was kind of panic. Not really, it was kind of a moral panic, but really like a political ideological panic, I guess is maybe the way to yeah, put it. Absolutely. So this period has a slightly more well-known name, which is McCarthyism. <laughs> It was dubbed that after its well-known and most vocal supporter, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Republican from Wisconsin. Good for you, Wisconsin. 
In March 1947, President Truman signed Executive Order 9835, which created the Federal Employees Loyalty Program, establishing political loyalty review boards who determined the quote-unquote Americanism of federal government employees and requiring that all federal employees take an oath of loyalty to the United States government. Also, I always do the air quotes, which is really just not conducive to like a, an audio format, but here we are. Anyways, this executive order also recommended, recommended the termination of those who had confessed to spying for the USSR, as well as some suspected of being quote-unquote un-American. This order led to more than 2,700 dismissals and 12,000 resignations between the years of 1947 and 1956, and became the template for many state legislatures' loyalty acts, such as California's Levering Act. The House Committee on Un-American Activities, or the HUAC, was created during the Truman administration as a response to allegations of disloyalty within the administration. HUAC and the committees run by Senator Joe McCarthy conducted character investigations of, quote, American communists, both actual and alleged, their roles in real and imaginary espionage and propaganda and subversion favoring the Soviet Union, all in the process revealing the extraordinary breadth of the Soviet spy network and infiltrating the federal government. This process also launched the careers of men like Richard Nixon and JFK, and obviously McCarthy himself. The HUAC held the largest interest in investigating those in the entertainment industry in Hollywood and interrogated actors, writers, and producers. Um, some people know about this. It's actually fairly famous. Uh, like Ronald Reagan was pretty known to be a... Uh, he f- we talked about this in a previous episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but... That's how we met his wife, remember? Yeah, oh, yeah right. Because she accidentally ended up on the blacklist. Right, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, Nancy. But people who cooperated in the investigations got to continue working as they had been. Reagan. <laughs> but people who had refused were blacklisted and often never worked again. McCarthy often or further stirred fear in the U.S. of communists infiltrating the country by saying that communist spies were omnipresent and that he was America's only salvation. Sound like anybody we know? <laughs> McCarthy did what politicians do best, use fear to increase his own influence. In 1950, McCarthy addressed the Senate and he cited 81 separate cases and made accusations against suspected communists. Although he provided little or no evidence at all, he prompted the Senate to call for a full investigation. Eventually in 1954, after he accused the army, including war heroes, McCarthy lost credibility in the eyes of the American public because it turns out, you know, less than 10 years after the end of the war, if you criticize war heroes, you're not really gonna be liked very much. (laughs) especially when one is the president. Yeah. He was formally censured by his colleagues in Congress, and the hearings led by McCarthy were eventually closed. After the formal censure, he lost a lot of his standing in political power, and some of the tension and excitement from a possible communist takeover died down. The Supreme Court made a number of important decisions between the years of 1955 and 1959, which restricted the ways in which the government could enforce its anti-communist policies, which included limiting the federal loyalty program to only those who had access to sensitive information, allowing defendants to face their accusers, reducing the strength of the congressional investigation committees or communities, and weakening the Smith Act, a law which required all non-citizen adult residents to register with, with the, register with the government and made it a crime to willingly or willfully advocate the duty, necessity, or desirability of overthrowing or destroying the government in the U.S. by force or violence. In 1957, Yates versus the U- United States, and the 1961 case Scales versus the United States, the Supreme Court limited Congress's ability to circumvent the First Amendment, and in 1967, during the Supreme Court U.S. versus Robel, the Supreme Court ruled that a ban on communists in the defense industry was unconstitutional. The FBI also saw its role in all of this surveillance uh, (laughs) during the McCarthy period. J. Edgar Hoover really thrives in these kinds of situations because he was really the man for, he was really a man of the times. 
The Hephei saw its role expand and become much more important through this period, and especially under the hand of J. Edgar. Hoover served as FBI director from 1924 to 1972. It combined 48 years in a couple of different agencies, which eventually formed into the FBI. He was chiefly responsible for creating the Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory, or the FBI Lab, which officially opened in 1932 as part of his work to professionalize investigations by the government. He was substantially involved in major cases and projects that the FBI handled during his tenure, which was a controversial one. They focused on the scope and influence of the Ku Klux Klan, and in the 1920s, Hoover began wiretapping to arrest bootleggers during prohibition. In 1927, the Supreme Court ruled in Olmstead versus United States that the FBI wiretaps were not in violation of the Fourth Amendment as unlawful search and seizure, as long as the FBI did not break into a person's home to complete the tapping. During the, quote, war on crime of the 1930s, the FBI agents apprehended or killed a number of notorious criminals who committed kidnappings, bank robberies, etc., including Don Gill or John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Kate Ma Barker, Elvin Creepy Carpus, and George Machine Gun Kelly. The FBI began its foray into espionage investigations in the 1940s, though. Eight Nazi agents who had planned to sabotage operations against American targets were arrested and six were executed under their sentences. But the biggest thing here was that the US and the United Kingdom had a joint project known as the Venona Project during this time in which the FBI was heavily involved. This project broke Soviet diplomatic and intelligence communications codes and allowed the United States and the UK to read their communications as a result. The effort confirmed the existence of Americans working in the United States for Soviet intelligence, which is a really big deal. Hoover was administering this project but failed to notify the CIA of it until 1952. So kind of a control freak and not great at communication, I guess. Um, another notable case the FBI was involved in was the arrest of Soviet spy Rudolf Abel in 1957. The discovery of Soviet spies operating in the US allowed Hoover to pursue his long-standing obsession with the threat he perceived from the American left, which ranged from the Communist Party of the United States to generally just American liberals, but I'm just gonna quickly talk a little bit about the American Communist Party here. Jumping around a little bit, but meh, follow me on this journey. <laughs> oh boy, I'm losing it. Um, it's been, it's been quite the year. <laughs> Come with me now on this journey, sorry. Come with us. Come with me. <laughs> um, anyway, so for the first half of the 20th century, the Communist Party in the United States was quite influential in various struggles for democratic rights. It played a prominent role in the labor movement in the 20s and the, all the way through the 40s, having a major hand in founding most of the country's industrial unions. And they also became known for opposing racism and fighting for integration in workplaces and communities during the height of Jim Crow segregation. Historian Ellen Strecker concludes that d decades of recent scholarship offer a more nuanced portrayal of the party as both a Stalinist sect tied to a victorious, or a vicious regime, and the most dynamic organization with the within the American left during the 1930s and 40s. They were also the first political party in the United States to be racially integrated. So, go CPUSA. Woo. Which, to be honest, I think kind of makes sense with, like, later on with, like, Black Panther... Uh, ideology and things like that. Like I could see kind of ties to make sense, right? Yeah, Historical especially ties. ideologically. Yeah, it makes sense if like this was the first organization that really in like embraced and it fought for civil rights, you know. By August 1919, only months after its founding, the Communist Party had claimed 50,000 to 60,000 members. Members also included anarchists and other radical leftists. At the time, the older and more moderate Socialist Party of America, suffering from criminal prosecutions for its anti-war stance during World War I, had declined to about 40,000 members. 
The sections of the Communist Party's International Workers' Order, or IWO, organized for communism around linguistic and ethnic lines, providing mutual aid and tailored cultural activities to an IWO membership that peaked at 200,000 at its height. Subsequent splits within the party have weakened its position. During the Depression, many Americans became disillusioned with capitalism, no shit, and some found communist ideology quite appealing. Others were attracted to the visible activism of communists on behalf of a wide range of social and economic causes, including civil rights for African Americans, workers, and the unemployed. The Communist Party played a significant role in the resurgence of organized labor in the 30s, but still others were alarmed by the rise of phalangists in Spain and the Nazis in Germany and admired the Soviet Union's early and staunch opposition to fascism. Party membership swelled from 7,500 at the start of the decade to 55,000 by the end. Party members also rallied to the defense of the Spanish Republic during its, this period after a nationalist military uprising moved to overthrow it. We should actually do an episode on that. Anywho. Uh, resulting in the Spanish Civil War. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union, along with leftists throughout the world, raised a lot of money for medical relief, while many of its members were on their way to Spain with the aid of the party to join the Lincoln Brigade, one of the international brigades. The Communist Party's early labor in organizing successes did not last. As the decades progressed, the combined efforts of the Second Red Scare, McCarthy, and Khrushchev's 1956 secret speech, which denounced the previous decades of Joseph Stalin's rule, and the adversities of the continued Cold War mentality, steadily weakened the party's internal structure and confidence. Party membership in the Communist International and its close adherence to the political positions of the Soviet Union made the party appear to most Americans as not only a threatening, subversive domestic entity, but also a foreign agent fundamentally alien to the American way of life. Internal and ex external crises generally kind of swirled together, and eventually it made a point where members who did not end up in prison for party activities tended to either disappear quietly from its ranks or adopt more moderate political positions at odds with party line. By 1957, membership had dwindled to less than 10,000, of whom some 1,500 were informants for the FBI. Not great. <laughs> the party also was also banned by the Communist Control Act of 1954, which still remains in effect, although it never, it's never really enforced, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the party attempted to recover with its opposition to the Vietnam War during the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but its continued uncritical support for an increasingly stultified and militaristic Soviet Union generally increasingly alienated it from the rest of the left wing of the United States, which saw the CPUSA's supportive role of the Soviet Union as outdated and somewhat dangerous, which is a fair point. I mean, be a little critical of it. Especially at this point, they're starting to bulk up for Afghanistan and other conflicts like that. So, helping in, helping in Vietnam, helping in Korea, etc. Also around this time, obviously, I mentioned the civil rights movement uh, began to take shape throughout the 50s, and FBI officials became increasingly concerned about that because you know, a bunch of white dudes, <laughs> a, little, a little worried about their power being threatened. Anywho, they became increasingly concerned about the influence of civil rights leaders whom they believed either had communist ties or were unduly influenced by communists or, quote, fellow travelers, whatever that means. In 1956, Hoover sent an open letter denouncing Dr. T.R.M. Howard, a civil rights surgeon, or, sorry, civil rights leader, surgeon, and wealthy entrepreneur in Mississippi, who'd criticized FBI in action in solving the recent murders of George W. Lee, Emmett Till, and other black folks in the South. The FBI carried out surveillance and attempts to disrupt the activities of dissident political organizations within, within the US, and among its targets was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a leading civil rights organization whose clergy leadership included one Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. King was frequently investigated by the FBI when he began criticizing the Bureau for giving insufficient attention to the t use of terrorism by white supremacists. 
Hoover responded by publicly calling King the quote, or quote, the most notorious liar in the United States. The FBI sent, I actually think that's Hoover, um, <laughs> in a particularly controversial incident in 1965, white civil rights leader Viola Luzo was murdered by Ku Klux Klansmen who had given chase and fired shots into her car after noticing that her passenger was a young black man. One of the Klansmen was Gary Thomas Rowe, an acknowledged FBI informant. The FBI spread rumors that Luzo was a member of the Communist Party and had abandoned her children to have sexual relationships with black men. Oh, scandalous. And involved in the civil rights, who were involved in the civil rights movement. FBI records show that Hoover personally communicated these insinuations to President Johnson. Hoover also personally intervened to prevent federal prosecutions against the Klansmen who were responsible for the terrorist bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. By May 1965, local investigators in the FBI had identified the perpetrators of the bombing, and this information was relayed to Hoover. But no prosecutions ensued, however. Despite the evidence being being reportedly, quote, so strong that even a white Alabama jury would convict. There had been a history of mistrust between local and federal federal investigators, and later that same year, Hoover Hoover formally blocked any impending federal prosecutions against the suspects and refused to share with state or federal prosecutors any of the evidence his agents obtained. In 1968, the FBI formally closed their investigation into the bombing without filing any charges against any of the named suspects. The files were then sealed on Hoover's order, and no prosecutions in this case would take place until 1977. Hoover personally directed the investigation into JFK's assassination, and in 1964, days before Hoover testified at the earliest stages of the Warren Commissions, which were the official hearings, President Lyndon Lyndon Johnson waived the then-mandatory U.S. government retirement age of 70, allowing Hoover to remain FBI director for, quote, an indefinite indefinite period of time. The House Select Select Committee on Assassinations, what a name, issued a report in 1979 on the performance of the FBI and Warren Commission and found that Hoover was reluctant to thoroughly investigate the possibility of a conspiracy to assassinate the president. So, you know, no, we're all not a great dude. Yeah, Hoover sucks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he also was, like, famous for, you know, like, relentlessly hunting uh, LGBTQ folks and also was... Gay. <laughs> well, there's rumors. I yeah, guess. there's rumors that he was gay or a crossdresser. Yeah. Which I don't know. Like, doesn't like cross like oddly crossdressing doesn't seem. I don't want to say this because like I don't want to. I don't want to insult crossdressers, but like Hoover, Hoover fucking sucked. <laughs> Hoover was nuts. He really did. I mean, I. It honestly wouldn't surprise me if he was gay and was like also at the same time because a lot of there are there are people who refuse to believe it and yeah you know like well, look at Ted Haggett yeah so <laughs> I mean it would also explain so much of his anger um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway oh dear I really hope we just didn't lose the LGBT community I don't, I don't think so okay I mean. Hoover was the worst. We're not Hoover like, was terrible. It's not like we want to claim him. No. Just saying. No, obviously not. There was uh, just those rumors, and for somewhat, like, they're somewhat, they're somewhat valid. There's some proof of it. Yeah. To some extent, but. Coenta Pro was basically Hoover's paranoid project in terms of, I guess, getting everyone he could who was on his enemies list to be to be watched yeah and it was a long list you think nixon's list was long 
you, you ain't got shit on Hoover. So COINTELPRO is the common term for, it's the common name for the official title, which was just counterintelligence program. Not as catchy. Yeah. And it was first established in 1956 during the height of the anti-communist hysteria, as Lindsay mentioned. So its initial purpose was aimed at causing disruption, encouraging defection, and overall fractionalization of the CPUSA, and to an extent of the Socialist Workers' Party, which was a more moderate Socialist Party operating at the same time. Starting in October of the same year, Hoover's paranoia caused him to draw to the conclusion communists had infiltrated the civil rights movement. In response, Hoover allowed the agents under COINTELPRO to conduct surveillance on black activists and leaders. Because, you know, black people wanting freedom to, you know, not be segregated and yeah. to vote and whatnot, they must be communists. How, that's the, how dare they? Because that's the one thing communists want is they want people to vote. Yeah. <laughs> now we've lost our communist listeners. Anyway. <laughs> The 1960s and 70s brought about more so-called enemies of Hoover with the growth of the civil rights movement, as well as the addition of the Vietnam War opposition and the rise of the new left movement. Essentially, any group or person seen to be a threat to the, quote, ordinary way of American life, end quote, became a potential target for surveillance and harassment. And I don't know about you, but we seem to keep coming up with like finding these terrifyingly generic descriptions of shit like what the fuck does ordinary way of american life mean right Coming i mean up. well it's it's clearly like white supremacy yeah, like, at its yeah. core but. but hey billy let's go out in the yard and play ball with your old man <laughs> is that what it is like i but yeah you're right no it's Anglo-Saxon bullshit. As Lindsay mentioned, one of the first targets under, like, for Hoover, and actually one of the first targets, probably the first target, uh, aside from uh, CPUSA, was uh, TRM Howard. As you can imagine, their methods were very secret police-like, almost. The program would conduct surveillance on individuals and members of the targeted organizations through the use of wiretaps and actual eye-on surveillance. Like, when you think of the term men in black, you're probably not far off. And there's a reason why the FBI and, like, CIA and whatnot have that stereotype of the men in black. Yeah. And, like, this, yeah. Agent provocateurs would be used to infiltrate the organizations to further gather intelligence. Furthermore, they would openly cause disruption, bring forward controversial ideas and actions in order to cause division within the organization, as well as dissuade any prospective members from joining and discredit their, the public image through rambunctiousness. The, pub, the public image of the organizations, excuse me. False documents would also be produced and planted in the possession of, the, of members in high officials to create suspicion that they were either CIA or FBI plants or moles passing information in order to discredit the person's reputation within the organizations themselves. Agents would harass targeted individuals, often with blackmail. They would also paid officers to provide false testimony during trials and fabricate evidence to secure false arrests and imprisonment. 
They would also use the IRS to enforce tax laws in order to conduct investigations and gain subpoenas against individuals. Does any of this sound familiar? Mm, yeah. Ringing bells. Yeah. We did talk quite a bit about the Stasi, and this is sounding very Stasi esque. It's funny how much the communists hated them and they hated the communists, but their methods were very similar. It's like that joke. It's like, if only they met and just talked to each other, they would actually get along really well. That was the U.S. and the, and the Soviet Union for a yeah, lot of it. So some examples of targeted persons and organizations. We already mentioned CPUSA and Socialist Workers Party. Also targeted were Martin Luther King Jr. and the late John Lewis. Uh, rest in power, sir. Mm. The Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X the Young Lords, the American Indian Movement, and under the fierce insistence by Lyndon Johnson, the program started targeting the KKK during Johnson's presidency. Even environmentalists were not safe as um, one of the main targets of COINTELPRO was Earth First. Hmm. So Martin Luther King became a target for the... They, he'd been on FBI's radar since King led the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, which was held in response to Rosa Parks being arrested for refusing to give up her seat. Mm. Hoover was personally hostile towards King due to the belief he had come under the influence of communism. Because again, only a co damn commie would want, you know, right. basic civil rights. <laughs> In 1962, Hoover alleged to Attorney General Robert Kennedy that Stanley Levison, a close advisor to King, was a member of the CPUSA, albeit secretly. There was and remains no evidence such claims are even true. Kennedy authorized the wiretapping of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC, and King's home as a result in October 1963. Remember, that's Bobby. That's the good one. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Levison was a, was a lawyer who actually helped King prepare his speeches, raise funds, and organize events, and was actually one of the main organizers of the March on Washington. The hostility intensified after King's April 1964 remarks on the FBI calling the organization, quote, completely ineffectual in resolving the continued mayhem and brutality inflicted upon the Negro in the Deep South, end quote. Which, you know, it, it actually sounds very similar to certain institutions to this day. As a result of Hoover's hatred of King, the man was directly targeted by COINTELPRO. Surprise, surprise. In 1964, King received an anonymous letter, um, which I'm actually going to read the first paragraph. You ready for this? Because it's a doozy. I don't know. I'm I sure you, you have read it. Yeah. So the first paragraph goes as such. King, in view of your low grade, abnormal personal behavior, I will not dignify your name with either a mister or a reverend or a doctor. And your last name calls to mind only the type of king such as King Henry VIII and his countless acts of adultery and immoral conduct lower than that of a beast. <laughs> Just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The letter continues to accuse King of participating in an extramarital affair with men and women. 
participating in orgies, claiming to have evidence of him doing so, and stating there is, quote, only one thing left for you to do, end quote, before giving him a deadline of 34 days. Now, it never says what the one thing is, but it's very obvious that there, this letter was trying to get King to kill himself. Yeah. Instead, King almost immediately showed the letter to his friends and his wife and immediately suspected Hoover himself had written the letter. Which, again, would not actually surprise me if it was Hoover's hands typing out this letter. Yeah, probably was. It was, it was hand typed, by the way. It was likely him dictating. No, he probably did it himself. He he pro wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't be wouldn't surprised if this. he wrote this himself. <laughs> the package delivered to him also contained a tape, which King's wife, Coretta, described as, quote, just a lot of mumbo jumbo. And yeah, it, it supposedly contains a liaison between King and um someone yeah although from what i was able to research it is likely bogus there's no yeah. real evidence that king was unfaithful to his wife yeah i've never i've, I've never seen any actual evidence yeah me neither about it just it all seems to be spe speculation honestly probably started by this fucking letter <laughs> basically immediately like the like immediate like what King did immediately in the aftermath of getting this letter kind of colors him as innocent in my eyes because like I don't know, to me a guilty man wouldn't immediately show this to not all just his close friends and associates, but his wife. Yeah. In August 1967, King and the SCLC were placed under the Black Nationalist Hate Groups branch of the Cointel Pro, which there's one major problem with that. They were neither black nationalist nor were they a hate group. <laughs> However, investigation into King and other civil rights leaders continued leaders by Cointel dropped following the passage of the Civil Rights Act. With the amount of attention Cointel Pro gave to King, it's understandable why people suspect they may have been involved with his assassination. That's a whole different story, which I won't get into. But yeah, it's understandable. Like having read, read just how much they focused on him. Yeah. Yeah. And COINTELPRO doesn't stop there. Because in February 1968, a domestic terrorist organization known as the Minutemen was disbanded after its leader, Robert Dupu. I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but who cares? And other members were indicted on charges of conspiracy to commit bank robbery, as well as violation of federal firearms laws. Depew attempted to flee, but was captured a year later, and he spent until May 1973 in prison. Around 12 former Minutemen banded together to form the Secret Army Organization, or SAO. I'm going to just call them SAO. In San Diego, one of the leaders, Jerry Lynn Davis, had worked for the CIA during the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. <laughs> so he kind of knew a thing or two about our secret armies, but also not really because it was the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. The group was organized and funded by the FBI's COINTELPRO program. Mm. Specific to the surprise of no one. Yeah, specifically to work with COINTELPRO in aiding with their activities of harassment and provocation. Like, as we've mentioned before, these are what agent provocateurs are. They're either actual members of organizations causing mayhem or they're paid to cause mayhem. 
Agent Howard Godfrey was placed in the leadership position of Sao. For two years, Sao conducted firebombings of cars, burglarized homes, and vandalized places of employment of anti-war protesters throughout Southern California. In 1973, members of Sao were on trial for the firebombing of a movie theater. During the trial, Godfrey testified he had been given between $10,000 and $20,000 to purchase weapons and explosives within the five years of Sao's existence. He also stated he was paid $250 a month by the FBI and had his, had his expenses paid for, adding, quote, the FBI is taking good care of us, end quote. Following the testimony, the FBI withdrew their support of Sao and the group collapsed as a result. Godfrey was spared prosecution due to F the FBI's intervention, and he went on to work for the California State Fire Marshal's Office in 1975. <laughs> Probably one of the most disgusting, other than one that Lindsay's going to talk about, but another really disgusting thing that, like, they ruined, like, this program ruined people's lives. Like, so many horribly. lives. Yes. Um, I mean, we're laughing about it because just like just, the shit that they do is ridiculous. Kind of like the Stasi. It's like, like a defense mechanism almost. Yeah. And like it like it is ridiculous. Like when we were la like we were making fun of like we keep bringing up how Stasi sent wives a dildo. But I mean, I don't I don't find any incidents of the FBI doing that to people. But like it would like it's not doesn't sound far off from them in this case. But one of the people, where the one person I'm going, to, I'm personally going to talk about is Jean Seberg, American actress, a staunch civil rights supporter, frequently provided financial support to the NAACP and to Native American reservations education. For example, she bought $500 worth of basketball uniforms for the Muskwaki Bucks team of Tama Settlement, located near her hometown of Marshalltown, Iowa. Better than the Milwaukee Bucks. <laughs> Just had to throw in some, some Raptors petty. Continue. Uh, her common human decency made her the target of Cointel Pro during the 1960s because it seemed like common human decency was one of the main things that got you targeted by these by Hoover. As she fell under the quote under the black liberation and anti-war categories hmm. in 1970 agents developed a fake story involving a, an informant quote-unquote from san francisco providing quote-unquote evidence seberg's unborn child was not that of her husband romaine gary but instead of one raymond hewitt of the black panther party hmm. los angeles times reporter joyce Haber, the gossip columnist, picked up the story, and while not naming Seberg directly, the description was too close to mistake it for someone else. Later, Newsweek published their own story in which Seberg was directly named as the person of interest. The stress over the sudden media attention and scrutiny caused Seberg to go into labor prematurely on August 23, 1970. Her daughter was born four pounds and tragically passed away two days later. The funeral. I was also four pounds when I was born. Really? Yeah. Shit. The funeral for the child was conducted at, with an open casket as Seberg's way of showing that the child's skin color was white and that Newsweek and LA Times were scumbags. It's, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be at your, your child, like that small of a child's funeral yeah. for that reason. Right. Yeah. 
Seberg and her husband sued Newsweek for $200,000 in damages, and a French court ordered the paper to pay $10,800 as well as print a lengthy article on the court's judgment, as well as, a, as an apology. Seberg continued to be a target of COINTELPRO for years, with friends saying she was aggressively stalked by agents surveying her, multiple break-ins to her home, and even face-to-face -face intimidation. Furthermore, later released documents shows she was wiretapped, with countless logs detailing how she was watched even while she was living in France, Switzerland, and Italy. Documents also show that Nixon was informed directly about Seberg's surveillance. It is also believed her targeting by COINTELPRO led her to become blacklisted by Hollywood. Seberg eventually moved to Paris following the torment from the FBI. On August 30th, 1979, she was reported missing by her partner after he woke up to find her gone. He was concerned as she had been displaying suicidal tendencies in the days leading up. Nine days later, her body was discovered in the back of her car, an empty bottle of barbiturates next to her, and a note to her son saying, forgive me, I can no longer live with my nerves. The FBI really liked to use barbiturates. Yeah, yeah but I do believe she yeah. committed suicide. Her death was ruled a probable suicide. In a press conference, Gary, whom she had actually been divorced from since 1970, not long after their child's death, publicly denounced the FBI blaming them for Seberg's death by causing immense mental stress and anguish. He also revealed Seberg had attempted suicide multiple times, always on the same day each year, August 25th, the anniversary of their daughter's death. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to even like read through that because it's horrific and it's disgusting. Yeah. So. They also just, well, you know, destroyed a lot of lives. So another one of those was that of Fred Hampton, who was born on August 30th, 1948 in the suburbs of Chicago. His parents had moved there from Louisiana as part of the great migration of African-Americans in the early, early 20th century from the South to the North, generally looking for jobs and better lives. So when he was young, Hampton was both a gifted athlete as well as in the classroom and dreamed of playing center field for the New York Yankees. He graduated from Provisio East High School with honors in 1966 and enrolled at Triton Junior College in River Grove, Illinois, where he majored in pre-law. His goal was to become more familiar with the legal system to use it as defense against the police. Smart. <laughs> yeah. When he and his fellow Black Panthers later followed, this is much down the road, but when he and his fellow Black Panthers later followed police and community supervision program, watching out for police brutality, they used his knowledge of the law as a defense. Talk a bit more about that in a bit, though. Uh, Hampton became active in the National Association for the Advancement of, Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, and assumed leadership of its Western Suburban Branches Youth Council. He began to demonstrate natural leadership abilities in this role, mustering a youth group of some 500,000, or sorry, not 500,000, just 500, but out of a community of only 27,000, so that's quite strong. Yeah. He worked to get more and better recreational facilities established in the neighborhoods and to pr improve educational opportuni opportunities and resources for Maywood's impoverished black community. He hoped to achieve social change by involving himself with organizations like the NAACP and community organizing and nonviolent activism. Around the same time he was successfully organizing black youth for the NAACP, the Black Panther Party was also rising to national prominence. Hampton was quickly attracted to the Black Panther Party's approach, which was based on a 10-point program that integrated black self-determination with class and economic critique from Maoism. Hampton, 
joined the party and relocated to downtown Chicago. And in November 1968, he joined the party's nascent Illinois chapter, founded in late 1967 by Bob Brown, a student nonviolent coordinating committee organizer, or the SNCC. So at this time, the Black Panther Party chapter and the SNCC were kind of, it was like a joint at this point. So it's kind of important to keep that in mind because it is very relevant later. Through the next year, Hampton and his associates made a number of significant achievements in Chicago. Possibly his most important achievement, though, was brokering a non-aggression pact among Chicago's most powerful street gangs. Hmm. He emphasized that racial and ethnic conflict among gangs would only keep its members entrenched in poverty, which was no one's goal. Hampton strove to forge a a class-conscious, multiracial alliance among the Black Panther Party, the Neo-Confederate Young Patriots Organization, and the Young Lords under the leadership of Jose Chacha Jimenez, leading to the Rainbow Coalition. Hampton met the Young Lords in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood the day after they were in the news for occupying a police community workshop at the Chicago 18th District Police Station. It's bold. <laughs> he was arrested twice with Jimenez at the Wicker Park Welfare Office, and both were charged with mob action at a peaceful ticket of the office. Later, the Rainbow Coalition was joined nationwide by Students for Democratic Society, or SDS, the Brown Berets, AIM, and the Red Guard Party. In May 1969, Hampton called a press conference to announce that his Rainbow Coalition had formed. It was a phrase that Hampton coined and that Jesse Jackson would later popularize, and eventually became the name of one of Jackson's unrelated projects. Hampton rose quickly in the Black Panthers based on his organizing skills, oratorical gifts, and personal charisma. He was well-liked by everybody and was really good at getting everyone together, generally. Yeah. Good dude. Amicable. And very smart and, like, worked hard. He worked hard to gain people's trust, and he did so many things. Once he became the leader of the Chicago chapter, he organized weekly rallies, worked closely with the Black Panther Party's local people's clinic, taught political education classes every morning at 6 a.m., and launched a project for community supervision of the police. He was also instrumental in the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program which was actually one of the most well-known things that the Black Panther Party did. Or like, well, one of the most things, one of the things they did the most that was like not actually talked about, like their, the the free breakfast program was actually really big. So like they're often associated with being this like militaristic sort of like thing, but they really did a lot of just. Yeah, I mean, they were like, they they were aggressive in rhetoric and whatnot, but they did a lot. But they ultimately just did like good community things. Yeah, exactly. And like, they fed people. Yeah, no, like they weren't. I mean, apparently the the current, the, the like the new Black Panthers are closer to like the description that the old Black Panthers are given. Like even mm-hmm. the 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 original Black Panther members have denounced the new Black Panthers. Okay. Um, I'm not super familiar with the new Black Panther. Yeah, they're 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 um they're a lot more mili- uh, like militant, I guess. And like 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 I said, the new Black Panther or the the. Uh, the original Black Panthers uh, refused to associate with this new group because they, it's like they, they, they're basically like they're like these guys are nothing like what we strived for or anything because like, but they, they like provided meals at, for yeah the impoverished communities which you know like and still do mm-hmm. happen to be predominantly like yeah. minority including black totally. So Bob Brown, the original founder of, well, the Black Panther chapter in Chicago, eventually left the party with Stokely Carmichael in the FBI-fomented SNCC-Panther split. Uh, so the FBI was, like, really notorious for just getting in there and trying to, like, cause infighting and basically make themselves, make them, they were notorious for making people try and, like, tear themselves apart. It wasn't yeah. them. They were, like, doing little things on the outside to make you 
they would do this individuals where they'd make you just kind of like go crazy think you're going crazy things like that yeah like i said at the beginning like that yeah they did this with cpusa yeah and so they eventually did this with the black panthers as well and so once this happened stokely and brown and stokely carmichael left uh hampton assumed chairmanship of the illinois state black panther party and this automatically made him a national black panther party deputy chairman and his prominence in the national hierarchy rose rapidly and dramatically as Black Panther Party ship or Black Panther Party leadership was decimated over time by the COINTELPRO program. Hampton's effective leadership and talent for communication marked him as a major threat to Hoover, who was neither a good leader or a good communicator. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI began keeping close tabs on his activities. Investigations have shown that Hoover was determined to prevent the formation of a cohesive black movement in the United States. He believed the Panthers, Young Patriots, Young Lords, and similar radical coalitions Hampton had forged in Chicago were a stepping stone to the rise of a revolution that could threaten the U.S. government and society. The FBI opened a file on Hampton in 1967 and tamped Hampton's mother's phone in 1968. By May, they had placed Hampton on the Bureau's Agitator Index as a key militant leader. In late 1968, the Racial Matters Squad of the FBI's Chicago field office recruited William O'Neill to work with it. He had recently been arrested twice for interstate car theft and impersonating a federal officer. In exchange for having his felony charges dropped in a monthly stipend, O'Neill agreed to infiltrate the Black Panther Party as a counterintelligence operative. O'Neill joined the Black Panther Party and rose quickly, becoming the director of chapter security and Hampton's bodyguard. In 1969, the FBI Special Agent in Charge, or SAC, in San Francisco wrote Hoover that the agent's investigation had found that, in his city at least, the Panthers were primarily feeding breakfast to children. That was it. Hoover responded with a memo implying that the agent's career prospects depended on his supplying evidence to support Hoover's view that the Black Panther Party was a, quote, violence-prone organization seeking to overthrow the government by by revolutionary force. (laughs) Piece of shit. Anyway, using their favorite tactic of anonymous letters, the FBI sowed distrust and eventually instigated a split between the Panthers and the Rangers. O'Neill personally, personally instigated an armed clash between them on April 2nd, 1969. The Panthers became effectively isolated from their power base in the Chicago ghetto, so the FBI worked to undermine its ties with other radical organizations who still had ties in that community. Or, like, better on-the-ground ties, anyways, who the Black Panther Party worked through. So, O'Neill was instructed to, quote, create a rift between the party and the students for a democratic society whose Chicago headquarters was blocks from the Panthers' HQ. The FBI released a batch of racist cartoons in the Panthers' name, aimed at alienating white activists. <laughs> they also ran a disinformation campaign program to forestall the formation of the Rainbow Coalition, but the Black Panther Party made an alliance with the Young Lords and the Young Patriots, so they were fine. <laughs> Hoover repeatedly demanded that COINTELPRO personnel investigate the Rainbow Coalition and, quote, destroy what the, BP, the Black Panther Party stands for and eradicate its Serve the People programs because Hoover's a piece of shit. Um, (laughs) In the 1970s, really can't emphasize this enough. In the 1970s, the Senate secured documents which revealed that the FBI actively encouraged violence between the Panthers and other radical groups, provoking provoking multiple murders in cities across the country. On July 16, 1969, an armed confrontation between party members and the Chicago Police Department resulted in one Black Panther Party member mortally wounded and six others being arrested on serious weapons charges. In October of that year, Hampton and his girlfriend, Deborah Johnson, who was expecting their first child, rented a four and a half room apartment at 2337 West Monroe Street to be closer to Black Panther Party headquarters. 
O'Neill reported to his superiors that much of the Panthers' quote, provocative stockpile of arms was, sorted, or was stored there and drew them a map of the apartment. In early November, Hampton traveled to California on a speaking engagement to the UCLA Law Students Association. While he was there, he met with remaining Black Panther Party national leaders, who then appointed him to the Black Panther Party's Central Committee. He soon took the position of Chief of Staff and Major Spokesman. While he was away, two Chicago Police Department officers were fatally shot in a gun battle with Panthers on the night of November 13th. One died the next day. A total of nine officers were shot, and 19-year-old Panther Spurgeon Winter Jr. was killed by police and another Panther, Lawrence Bell, was charged with murder. In an unsigned editorial headlined, quote, No Quarter for Wild Beasts, Chicago Tribune urged that Chicago police officers approaching suspected Panthers should, quote, be ordered to be ready to shoot. The FBI, determined to prevent any enhancement of the Black Panther Party's leadership's effectiveness, decided to set up an arms raid on Hampton's Chicago apartment. O'Neill had provided them with the detailed information of the apartment, including the layout of the furniture and the bed where Hampton and his girlfriend slept. A specialized 14-man SAO, 14 SAO team was organized for a pre-dawn raid aimed with a search warrant for illegal weapons. During dinner at the Hamptons' apartment with friends the evening before the raid, O'Neill slipped a barbiturate into Hampton's drink in order to sedate him so he would not awaken during the subsequent raid. O'Neill then left, and around 1.30 a.m., Hampton, drugged on barbiturates, fell asleep mid-sentence on the telephone with his mother, whose phone was tapped. Uh, Cook County chemist Eleanor Berman would report that she had run two separate tests which reported evidence of barbiturates in Hampton's blood, though the FBI chemists would deny this and say that they didn't find any. The raid was organized by the Office of the Cook County State's Attorney General, Edward Hanrahan, using officers attached to his office. Hanrahan had recently been strongly criticized by Hampton, who had said that Hanrahan's talk about a, quote, war on gangs was really rhetoric calling for a war on black youth, which is true. Let's call a spade a spade here. Just like the war on drugs is the same thing. At 4 a.m., the heavily armed police arrived at the site and divided into two teams, eight for the front of the building and six for the rear. At 4.45 a.m., they stormed the apartment. Mark Clark, who was on the security duty in the front room of the apartment with a shotgun on his lap, was shot in the chest. An alternative account, though, said that Clark answered the door and was immediately shot by police. So either way, he died, and when he was dying, his gun was discharged into the ceiling, which was the only shot fired by the Panthers in this entire raid, in which there were many shots fired. Hampton, who was drugged, was sleeping on a mattress in the bedroom with his fiancée, Deborah Johnson, who was nine months pregnant. She was forcibly removed from the bedroom by police while Hampton still lay unconscious in bed. The raiding team then fired at the head of the south bedroom, and Hampton was hit in the shoulder. Bellow Black Panther Harold Bell said he heard the following exchange. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. The injured Panthers then said they heard two shots, and according to Hampton's supporters, the shots were fired point-blank at Hampton's head. According to Deborah Johnson, an officer then said, quote, He's good and dead now. Hampton's body was dragged into the doorway of the bedroom and left in a pool of blood, and officers directed their gunfire at the remaining Panthers who had been sleeping in the north bedroom. Berlina Brewer, Ronald Doc Satchel, Blair Anderson, and Brenda Harris were seriously wounded, then beaten and dragged into the street. They were arrested on charges of aggravated assault, <laughs> okay, and the attempted murder of officers. Right. Yeah. They were each held on the on $100,000 U.S. bail. Woof. Which, in the 60s, was like... Yeah, I've seen the photos of the aftermath of the raid, because yeah, they're now public. Disgusting. It's horrific. I was looking at them, too. In the early 1990s, Deborah Johnson was interviewed about the raid by uh, Ch Jose Chacha Jimenez, the former president and co-founder of the Young Lords organization and the, Rain the Rainbow Coalition. 
he and his group had developed close ties to Fred Hampton, like I mentioned. And uh, Deborah said that uh, I believe Fred Hampton was drugged. The reason why is because when he woke up, the or when the person said chairman chairman he was shaking fred's arm you know fred's arm was folded across the head of the bed and fred he just raised his head up real slow it was like watching in slow motion he raised his eyes were open his he raised his head up real slow you know and his eyes toward the entryway toward the bedroom and laid his head back down that was the only movement he made the seven panthers who had survived the raid were indicted by a grand jury on charges of attempted murder armed violence and various other weapons charges these charges were subsequently dropped during the trial, the Chicago Police Department claimed that the Panthers were the first to fire shots, but a later investigation found that the Chicago Police fired between 90 and 99 shots, while the Panthers only fired one bullet that hit the ceiling from Mark Clark's fallen shotgun. So, yeah. suck it, Chicago PD. After the raid, the apartment was left unguarded. The Panthers sent home members to investigate, accompanied by a videographer to document the scene. The footage was later released as part of the 1971 documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton. At a press conference the next day, the police announced the arrest team had been attacked by the, quote, violent and extremely vicious Panthers, who were sleeping, and had, been de had, and had defended themselves accordingly. In a second press conference on December 8th, the police leadership praised the assault team for their remarkable restraint, bravery, and professional discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. Photographic evidence was presented of bullet holes allegedly made by shots fired by the Panthers, but this was soon challenged by reporters, obviously. An internal investigation was undertaken, and the police claimed that their colleagues and friends on the assault team were exonerated of any wrongdoing. Hampton's funeral was attended by 5,000 people, and he was eulogized by black leaders such as Jesse Jackson, Ralph Abernathy, or, and Ralph Abernathy, who was Martin Luther King's successor as, as the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In his eulogy, Jackson noted that, quote, when Fred was shot in Chicago, black people in particular and decent people in general bled everywhere. On December 6th, members of the Weather Underground destroyed numerous police vehicles in retaliatory bombing street at 3600 North Halstead Street in Chicago. The police described their raid on Hampton's apartment as a shootout. The Black Panthers countered Hanrahan's claim of a shootout by describing it as a shoot-in because met so many of the shots were fired by police. On December 11th and 12th, the two competing daily newspapers, the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times, published vivid accounts of the events but drew different conclusions. At the time, the Tribune was considered politically conservative, and the Sun-Times was considered a politically liberal newspaper. On the 11th, the Tribune published a one-page article titled, Exclusive, Hanrahan Police Tell Panther Story. The article included photographs supplied by the state attorney's office and that depicted bullet holes in the thin white curtain and the door jam as evidence that the Panthers fired multiple bullets at the police. Jack Chalum, editor of the Wright College News, the student newspaper at Wright Junior College in Chicago, had visited the apartment on Saturday, December 6th, as it was unsecured. He took numerous photographs of the crime scene because members of the Black Panthers were allowing visitors to tour the apartment. Challenge's photographs did not show the bullet holes as reported by the Tribune. On the morning of December 12th, after the Chicago Tribune article had appeared with the Hanrahan-supplied photos, Challenge contacted a reporter at the Sun-Times and showed him his own photographs and encouraged the other reporter to visit the apartment. That evening, the Chicago Sun-Times published a one a page one article with the headline, quote, those bullet holes aren't. According to the article, the alleged bullet holes, supposedly the result of the Panthers shooting, were actually nail heads. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago police are corrupt. Four weeks after witnessing Hampton, well, all police are corrupt in this sense, like in these situations, it seems like. Yeah. Four weeks after witnessing Hampton's death at the hands of the police, Deborah Johnson gave birth to their son, Fred Hampton Jr. 
Civil rights activists Roy, Wilkin, Roy Wilkins and Ramsey Clark subsequently alleged that the Chicago police had killed Fred Hampton without juris justification or provocation and had violated the Panthers' constitutional rights against unreasonable search and seizure. They were known as the Commission of Inquiry into the Black Panthers and the police. So the commission further alleged that the Chicago Police Department had imposed a summary punishment on the Panthers. A federal grand jury did not return any indictment against any of the numerous individuals involved with the planning or execution of the raid, including the officers involved in the killing of Hampton. FBI informant William O'Neill, who had given the FBI the floor plan of the apartment and drugged Hampton, later admit his admitted his involvement in setting up the raid. He later took his own life on January 25, 1990. Shortly after the raid, Cook County Coroner Andrew Toman began informing or forming a special six-member coroner's jury well, six-member coroner's journey, to hold an inquest into the deaths of Hampton and Clark. On December 23rd, Toman announced four additions to the jury, who included two African-American men, physician Theodore K. Wallace and attorney Julian B. Wilkins, the son of J. Ernest Wilkins, Sr. He said the four were selected from a group of candidates submitted to his office by groups and individuals representing both Chicago's black and white communities. Civil rights leaders and spokesmen for the black community were reported to have been disappointed with the selection. An official of the Chicago Urban League said, quote, I would have had more confidence in the jury if one of them had been a black man who has, the re who has a rapport with the young and the grassroots in the community. Gus Savage said that, said that such a man to whom the community could relate need not to be black, necessarily. The jury eventually included a third black man who had been a member of the first coroner's jury sworn in on December 4th. The Blue Ribbon Panel convened for the inquest on January 6, 1970. On January 21st, they ruled the deaths of Hampton and Clark to be justifiable homicides. The jury qualified their verdict on the death of Hampton as, quote, based solely, on, solely and exclusively on the evidence presented to this inquisition. Police and expert witnesses provided the only testimony, toast, oh my gosh, testimony. <laughs> Police and expert witnesses provided the only testimony during this inquest. So, hella biased. Jury foreman James T. Hicks stated that he, they could not consider the charges made by surviving Black Panthers who had been in the apartment. They had told reporters that the police entered the apartment shooting. The survivors who were reported to have te refused to testify during the inquest because they faced criminal charges of attempted murder and aggravated assault during the raid. Attorneys for the Hampton and Clark families did not introduce any witnesses during the proceedings but described the inquest as, quote, a well-rehearsed theatrical performance designed to vindicate the police officers, which happens very often after police shootings. State's attorney Edward Hanrahan, or Hanrahan, what a weird name, said that the verdict was recognition of, quote, the truthfulness of our police officer's account of the events. The reports of the federal grand jury were released on May 15, 1970, and they criticized the actions of the police, the surviving Black Panthers, and the Chicago news media. The grand jury said the police department's raid was ill-conceived, and that there were many errors committed during the post-raid investigation and reconstruction of events. It said that the refusal of the surviving Black Panthers to cooperate hampered the investigation and that the press, quote, improperly and grossly exaggerated the stories. There was also a lawsuit in 1970, uh, like Hampton and Clark filed a civil suit, and there were 28 defendants named, including um, Hanrahan in the city of Chicago, Cook County, and, federal, and the federal government. It took a long time to get to trial. That trial lasted 18 months. The jurors deadlocked the verdict, and the suit was dismissed. Although the plaintiffs appealed, and in 1979, the United States Court of Appeals of the Seventh Circuit in Chicago found that the government had withheld relevant documents, thereby obstructing the judicial process in the case. Reinstating the case against the 24 of the defendants, the Court of Appeals ordered a new trial. 
The Supreme Court heard an appeal by defendants, but voted 5-3 in, in 1980 to return the case to the district court for a new trial. In 1982, the city of Chicago, Cook County, and the federal government agreed to a settlement, which would pay $616,333 to a group of nine plaintiffs, including the mothers of Hampton and Clark. The $1.85 million settlement was believed to be the largest ever in a civil rights case. G. Flint Taylor, one of the attorneys representing the plaintiffs, said, quote, the settlement is an admission of the conspiracy that existed between the FBI and Hanrahan's men to murder Fred Hampton. An assistant United States attorney, Robert Grun Gruenberg, said that the settlement was intended to avoid another costly trial and it was not an admission of guilt or responsibility by any of the defendants. The allegation that Hampton was assassinated has been debated, ultimately, since the day that he and Clark were killed. Ten days after that killer, after the raid, Bobby Rush, then the Deputy Minister of Defense for the Illinois Black Panther Party, called the raiding party an execution squad. Um, as is typical in settlements, the three government defendants did not acknowledge claims of responsibility for the plaintiff's allegations. Some commentators have also debated whether the men died in an exchange of gunfire with police or were in intentionally slain. So there will always be doubters, I guess. Several scholars and documentaries assert that Hampton's, killings was, Hampton's killing was a political assassination perpetrated by Chicago police with the help of the FBI. Which is believable. Yeah. No, it absolutely Sadly. was an assassination. However, uh, life for COINTELPRO is about to end. Yeah. Because fed up with the activities of the FBI, a group of people banded together and formed what, it, what they later called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. Their identities remained anonymous until 2013, long after the statute of limitation had expired. And <laughs> the statute of limitation, you'll find out. <laughs> In order to be interviewed for a book on the subject, they were Keith Forsyth, Judy Fen Fiengold, Bonnie Raines, John C. Raines, who is a former freedom writer, Robert Williamson, and recruiter slash pseudo leader William C. Davidson. They were activists, but they were all like a mix of academics and, well, in, the, in uh, John C. Raines, he was a long-standing civil rights activist. The remaining two remain unnamed, going by the pseudonyms Susan Smith and Ron Durst, and to this day, it is unknown who these individuals are. Members of the commission targeted the FBI offices at One Veterans Square in Media, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. The office was only employed by two agents. For months, they surveyed the building in order to determine the agents' schedules. They also scoped out the FBI headquarters in Philadelphia proper, but it was deemed too risky as there were too many. There's just too many. On March 8th, 1971, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali were in Madison Square Garden participating in the fight of the century. 300 million people worldwide tuned in to watch the fight. Now, you're probably asking why the fuck are you bringing this up? And the reason why is because while the fight was happening, the commission broke into the offices and stole nearly every single document that was kept within the offices. They packed the documents into suitcases and calmly placed them in a getaway vehicle before driving off undetected. Literally, they broke the door open, walked in, got all these documents, and then put them in the trunk of a car and just drove away. And the fact is they specifically chose this 
to happen on the night of the fight because they knew Everyone it was a big fucking deal. Everyone will be watching. Hey, it's freaking Muhammad Ali. Yep. Like, and uh, interesting enough, Muhammad Ali was targeted by Cointel Pro. <laughs> Not really that shocking. You no, know. no, it was for his uh, membership in the Nation of Islam, for mm-hmm. people who don't know, and his anti, like his refusal to fight in Vietnam. His, his role in civil rights. Yeah. The group I'm then sure Kareem re- Abdul-Jabbar was too. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, the group then immediately began to read every single word of every page they had recovered, and they recovered probably close to like I think it was like tens of thousands of pages or something like that, which revealed in detail the activities committed by the COINTELPRO program, including King's suicide letter. The group spent the following days sending the information to as many news outlets as they possibly could. Unedited, not unredacted, in full. But they had no success in having the contents published as there was hesitation over releasing information of ongoing investigations out of fear it would endanger agents. However, the one newspaper, the one media organization that took an interest was the Washington Post. WAPO. <laughs> the Nixon administration actually caught wind that the Post had come into possession of the documents and attempted to have them handed back over. Of course they did. However, the Post basically told them to fuck off and published the first article of many on the attained information on March 24th, 1971. I would like to just say that the... The Washington Post has a history of, if anyone's <laughs> seen the Post. I'm pretty sure they, they have were, a history of really fucking with Nixon. Yeah, though they were behind Watergate. Like, they broke... Wa- they broke Watergate. Yeah. They broke the... Um, the Pentagon Papers. Pentagon Papers. Yeah. Those, like, words. Yeah. Um, and they published this. Yeah. The, the, the Washington Post were ballsy. Mm. Like, very ballsy. But it's like, once it's released, what can anyone do? Yep. So... Soon, other news outlets began to finally take an interest and began publishing their own articles on the contents of the documents. Many of them had Hoover's signature approving the methods and operations directly, despite their clear violation of the Constitution, particularly the First Amendment, which, for those of you who don't know, is protection of freedom of speech, freedom of association, of uh, the right to protest, and to an extent, right of religion. A 200-agent team was assembled to investigate the burglary, but despite five years of investigating, no leads or suspects were ever found. The FBI closed its investigation on March 11, 1976. By then, Hoover was dead, and his paranoid aura at the FBI began to fade along with him. By then, the I, I was reading about it. His successor was like, okay, we're kind of done with the whole... Hoover bullshit. A little bit of a Khrushchev to basically, yeah, he's Stalin. like, look, we're gonna calm things down like significantly because there was an apparently noticeably less harassment of like civil rights leaders after Hoover died by the FBI, at least. I mean, it still happened, but there was significantly less so after Hoover died. In response to the uh, to the these new developments, in 1975, the U.S. Senate set up the U- 
United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities. You're mentioning like uh, the names of uh, like the names of these kind of like committees. Yeah, yeah I think that one takes the cake. <laughs> it is better known today as the Church Commission after Idaho Senator Frank Church, who was the committee chair. Their purpose was to conduct an investigation into abuse of powers conducted by the CIA, NSA, IRS, and the FBI, particularly the COINTELPRO program. It was one of several other investigations in 1975 surrounding intelligence abuses, giving the year the nickname the Year of Intelligence. The committee was approved by a Senate vote of 82 to 4. I forgot to I forgot to mention uh, part of the doc, like some of the documents that they were able to discover were the COINTELPRO investigation into Fred Hampton, and it clearly points the fingers that the FBI were the ones who probably ordered the Chicago PD to conduct the raid and assassinate him. I mean, people, honest, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, these documents are all in the public record now un, like uncensored in its entirety. So people could go look this up and draw conclusions himself. But like from what I was reading is like, okay, this was clearly an FBI sanctioned hit. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's terrifying. The committee was a bipartisan one and included persons such as future VP Walter Mondale and previous presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. <laughs> Which is kind of terrifying. Oh, Barry. President Gerald Ford gave his, them his pledge the White House would cooperate fully with the investigation as they were still suffering the back, backlash of Watergate and Ford's subsequent pardoning of Nixon. Classic. Uh-huh. The investigation did meet with resistance with agencies delaying the release of documents but ultimately were forced to hand them over. The committee were able to access a staggering amount of classified material related to the intelligence methods. As well as unearthing the extent of COINTELPRO, the committee also discovered the NSA's projects Shamrock and Minaret, which, were, which was the monitoring of wire communications to and from the United States, and actively sharing said it found information with other agencies across the country. So finding out about COINTELPRO had a massive knock-on effect in terms of intelligence, like yeah. what was discovered. Totally. Between the FBI and CIA, agents opened, photographed, and filed over 215,000 pieces of mail within a two-year period. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Part of me wants to use stealing, yeah. stealing people's mail by the dead Kennedys as our Stealing people's mail yeah. <laughs> on a Friday night. <laughs> oh man, um, what I, what I find interesting is one of the main analysts of the found documents uh, by the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI <laughs> yeah. was Noam Chomsky. Yeah, love him. Uh, for those of you who don't know Noam Chomsky, he is a famed. Uh, professor of linguistic, or, mm. or he's a famed linguist at least. I believe he's a professor. He's, yeah, I believe. Yeah. yeah, he was, or he was he a was. professor. He's professor emeritus now. Yeah, um, and uh, also very famous, like probably the most famous uh, libertarian socialist mm -hmm. ever, and a personal hero of mine. <laughs> um, 
take that as you will. Uh, yeah, he was one of the like everywhere I looked for like an analysis of this stuff, I I found Chomsky and quotes from Chomsky. So like any if you want someone to analyze, like have a good understanding, read what Chomsky has to say because he's mm-hmm. a very intelligent man. Yeah. yeah. Prior to the release of the final report, the committee published an interim report known as Alleged Assassination Plots Involving Foreign Leaders. After their investigation uncovered evidence, American intelligence agencies were possibly involved or supported the assassination or attempted assassination of several foreign leaders. Big surprise. Amongst the names were Go Dinh Diem of Vietnam, who was assassinated in a coup prior to the American intervention in Vietnam, and Fidel Castro, who the CIA famously tried and failed to kill over a hundred times. Kind okay. of like kind of like Stalin trying to kill Tito. <laughs> yeah. Just like okay. Not working. Guys, I'm not even kidding. They tried to assassinate Fidel Castro with an explosive cigar. Uh, yeah. Go and watch the the movie One Hundred and One Ways to Kill Kill Castro. It is amazing. Ford failed to have the release of the interim report delayed or stopped, and as a result of the findings, he signed Executive Order 11905, which banned U.S.-sanctioned assassinations of foreign leaders. Because, yeah. yeah, I think another one that was probably in there was, Pino, or not Pinochet, but uh, Allende. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still debate on whether Allende killed himself or was assassinated, but, like, I don't know. There's a lot of people like that. Yeah. The final report was six books in length and was published on April 1976. The church committee hearings were seven volumes in length. Just That's just the hearings. Dang. <laughs> okay, that, that's just the hearings on this. Could you imagine the amount of volumes Watergate hearings had? So many. Or fucking uh, Iran-Contra. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, what part of the findings had to say. Quote, many of the techniques used would be intolerable in a democratic society, even if all of the targets had been involved in violent activity. But COINTELPRO went far beyond that. The Bureau conducted a sophisticated vigilante operation aimed squarely at preventing the exercise of First Amendment rights of speech and association on the theory that preventing the growth of dangerous groups and propagation of dangerous ideas would protect the national security and deter violence, end quote, which is, I think, the perfect way to sum up Cointel Pro. Yeah, I think so. And Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> The investigation also found that the FBI's repressive methods dated further back than COINTELPRO, even before it was called the FBI. The committee found the Bureau was involved in detaining persons deemed as, quote, anarchists, communists, socialists, reformists, and revolutionaries, end quote, in order to deport them. The domestic operations against American citizens significantly increased between 1936 to 1976, targeting political and anti-war activists or groups. All the members of the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI all went their separate ways following the release of their findings, many of them going on to other activism. This was the only thing that they were involved in. Well, as, a, as this group. Well, that we know of. But honestly, they've all come forward. Like most of them have come forward and told their story. I think they would have said what else they had done, in my opinion. 
they they continued to do anti-war activism and civil rights activism uh and they still somewhat are, i think they're they're mostly retired now uh, a couple of them have since passed away and uh two we don't know Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, known as FISA, in 1978 as a result of the findings, which established a court task specifically with reviewing warrant requests for domestic spying and determining if they should be granted or denied. The FISA court remains controversial today as A, its members are unknown and they are classified, and it has only declined 0.3% of requests as of 2016. Furthermore, during the post-9-11 timeline, President George W. Bush allowed agencies to bypass the courts by direct directly giving authorization to spy on suspected Islamic fundamentalists and other terrorist groups or persons. So, And I mean, and emphasis on suspected. Just because COINTELPRO was dead, it did not mean that these kinds of activities with the FBI did not continue. Over 500 warrantless bugs were planted and 2,000 pieces of mail were opened between 1972 and 1974 by the FBI. Still mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Like. <laughs> Um, these were committed against organizations such as the American Indian Movement, Earth First, and the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. David Halberstan, the, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for his coverage of the Vietnam War and also a staunch anti-war activist, was revealed to have been under surveillance by the FBI for nearly two decades. In 2006, students from the Uni City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism were able to be granted access to FBI documents under the Freedom of Information Act. The documents detailed the tracking of Hel Halberstan beginning in the mid-1960s and lasting until the late 1980s. To this day, the FBI have given no reason why Halberstan was investigated. Similar operations have been conducted following the passage of the USA Patriot Act, big surprise, <laughs> supposedly done in the name of, quote, counteracting terrorist threats, end quote. I think it's still like shit like this is still going on today, especially like in recent times, because as we're about to talk about, there's the important movement going on known as Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Basically, in short, I'm sh I'm. I hope everyone listening knows what Black Lives Matter is. First of all, we would really like to just also state that the position of this podcast is that Black Lives Matter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. I feel like that should go without saying, yeah, but like, just to be clear, all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter. Yes. Most people actually don't seem to know how it started out or what exactly it is. It was, it was actually founded as a network on July 13th, 2013 by Alicia Garza. I, I apologize if I pronounce any of your names wrong, as usual, but Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. And it's be, it, became, it began as a simple hashtag on Twitter in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin in February 2012 and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman. It has since expanded into a decentralized organization. Essentially, it is a network of organizations and activists united under the principles combating racial discrimination. 
speaking of Barack Obama, this is what he had to say about the organization. I think the reason that the organizers used the phrase Black Lives Matters was not because they said they were suggesting nobody else's lives matter. Rather, what they were suggesting was there is a specific problem that is happening in the African-American community that's not happening in other communities. And that is a legitimate issue that we've got to address. We as a society, particularly given our history, have to take this seriously. And one of the ways of avoiding the politics of this and losing the moment is everybody just stepping back for a second and, and understanding you know, the African-American community is not just making this up. It's not just something being politicized. It, it, it's real. And, and there's a history behind it. And we have to take it seriously. And that, like, that's the reason why the statement All Lives Matter is dumb. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like... I. You probably hear this a hundred times, people, I apologize, but literally, like, saying Black Lives Matter does not mean only Black Lives Matter. No. It's often to be it's important to be specific, and it's also important to say Black Lives Matter because they haven't mattered traditionally, yeah. right? Like, it's also stating a fact. Like, it's iterating something that, it's affirming something that has never really been affirmed before or proven throughout his yeah. 400 years of, you know. Yeah, and basically being told... The way I was told by a friend of mine is like, she, she said, and I'm quoting her, like, I'm paraphrasing her basically. It's like, but like me saying Black Lives Matter and then you saying All Lives Matter in response, you might as well just cut out the middleman and spit in my face. Yeah. So that's how, like, that's, that's, bas that's basically what it is. It's like people who are saying All Lives Matter are kind of missing the point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, they even, the, on Black Lives Matter website itself, which is actually a very good resource, I recommend checking it out and donating if you can. Their quote, we work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and by extension, all people. Yeah. <laughs> it is stated in their mission yeah. that essentially all lives matter. But specifically, we're talking about black lives right yeah. now. Like at the, and it's like at the rally that we went to, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't just... Like, it was a Black Lives Matter vigil. Yeah. There are people from, like, all well, backgrounds Something there. that's been very important to the Black Lives Matter movement is also making space for indigenous activists as well and acknowledging that, you know, we are on their territory. Like, yeah. This is their territory. And part of the mission, at least in Canada to some extent, is also in giving, in, in land back movements, yeah. giving land back, which is important. And I fully support that, by the way. But we can talk about that another time. Uh, it's not really relevant to this particularly, but it's, it's largely a, a civil rights movement. It's just that Black Lives Matter is kind of the, the umbrella term now. Yeah. Really? I mean, if you, like, there's... If you think about it, like, Black Lives Matter has is essentially the civil rights movement of the 60s in terms of just, like, colloquial reference, right? Yeah. Like, when we say now, it's, like, in referencing... We, re, Black Lives Matter is a global, like, network, but it's not necessarily an organization. It's just that it, like... Is uh, it's kind of like the civil rights movement, where it had different organizations that banded together to aim for the same cause. It had different leaders. It had different, you know, specific goals in certain places, right? Um, People of different backgrounds. From Absolutely, different, like, and they didn't always work together. And there's certainly like every movement has that kind of fracture, including this one. Like they all do. There's definitely different different voices, um, but that's also part of what makes it good is that it's yeah. inclusive. Well, it's like Malcolm X 
and Martin Luther King, like the two prominent civil rights activists, completely different methods, didn't agree with each other at like base almost at all. Um, but they still respected each other. Um, in fact, apparently Malcolm X sent a letter to George Wallace uh, saying uh, uh, if anything should happen to, to Dr. King during his protests there, then yeah. you'll be the one who will suffer the consequences, basically. And I was just like, ooh. <laughs> um, coming, coming for you, George. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, I guess, like, I don't, I kind of hesitate to say this, but the term Black Lives Matter is, like, our generation's I have a dream. Yeah. Like, it, I'm not saying... Like I'm, I'm saying it's that like kind of movement, yeah, like, that kind of movement, but that level. also that kind of phrase. Yeah, yeah, it's that's yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at when I meant like the civil rights movement, like versus this. It's kind of the same thing, like in terms of just different time and different like specific words, but like same kind of phrase and image evoked, and like yeah, like the commonalities are very much there. Yeah, I would agree. And it's like back in, back when the when Martin Luther King made his amazing speech the I have a dream speech after he made that speech in the March on Washington and everything that was like in households across the United States, mm -hmm. across the world. So that, that phrase, I have a dream became, and it still is a phrase for civil rights. Yeah. And, uh, the same way, like, like with the technology we have now with the internet and like, yeah, with the internet and how fast information spreads, uh, the term Black Lives Matter is definitely has that, uh, I do believe that it has that same place in history as I Have a Dream because And of I hope how that it has the same, like it continues impact. to. Yeah, I mean, and it already has. There's already been lots of tangible changes that are starting to come from this, but I definitely hope that more continues. Me too. Um, there's a lot of momentum and like i mean you can see it already though that like it's we've already reached the point where it's like now is when the real challenge starts now it's backing up all the words from a couple weeks you know months ago where everyone was tweeting about it and posting yeah. about it and you know blackout tuesday and stuff and now it's you know it's not on tv anymore you don't see all the protests anymore unless you're really looking like they've been protesting for 90 straight days in louisville but you wouldn't know it yeah. based on the news portland is still yeah they've been going for over 100 yeah. days and so it's like, especially, but I mean, like Louisville with Breonna Taylor specifically, it's like, you know, no one would know that they've been protesting for 90 days unless you, you know, know people there. Rob, and her killers are still, still on the loose. been arrested. So good evening to they've everyone. They've been charged, but, but they're not fucking in jail. It's a great day to arrest them. They yeah. haven't been charged. I thought they were charged. No. Oh, fuckers. No, no. There's like no charges. One was, I think dismissed or something but that's at yeah. best Jesus. that's why they've been protesting outside the attorney general's house okay that's okay <laughs> that makes and sense. mitch mcconnell's house which is great yeah Fuck him. well we'll i mean but anyway let me, um, i've said this before like because it's, it's weird being like uh having a historical like a background and uh studying history and then you kind of like start to notice uh, events in your lifetime that are that are just like okay, holy shit, this is going to be a major um, event talked about in history down the line. Yeah. So this is like, it's a bit weird to be kind of self-aware, and I do hope that it is that as impactful as we're all like thinking it is. 
Yeah. I guess. Well, it's, and the reason why we thought it'd be important to talk like in detail about as much in detail about Black Lives Matter as we have uh, is because like Cointel Pro type shit yeah. is going down uh, against Black Lives Matter activists. Like, yeah, they're being surveyed. They're being watched. Yeah. Not necessarily by the FBI, but probably by the FBI. Um, and I mean, like, uh, uh, the dictator in chief recently said, like, re- like not long ago, tried to get Black Lives Matter and Antifa named as terrorist organizations, which honestly makes no sense at all mm. because both of them are neither of them are actual organizations both of them one is a network yep and one is a what and one is what should be a, a normal train of thought to be you know anti-fascist anti-discriminatory well really black lives matter should also be a regular uh train of thought uh and like it's interesting seeing how the black lives matter movement has impacted even Canada because once again we're having these conversations Mm -hmm. well I mean honestly black history in Canada is very much not taught at all when it's quite rich yeah and there's a lot of anti-blackness in Canada and a lot of anti almost a lot of racism in general um and a very strong culture of white supremacy. Our entire country is built on it. We're a colonialist nation, so it's pretty hard to avoid. Just and these read, conversations really all go together. There's a reason why red paint is being thrown at the statues of Johnny McDonald right now. And should be. And should be, yeah. Um, but yeah. it's uh, and like like we've said, like like we mentioned before, the Black Lives Matter movement has really evolved into something grander. Yeah. And like for like one thing I was mentioning is now we've seen the phrase "Indigenous Lives Matter." Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it quite a bit here. I'm sure it's. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's happening in the states and probably Australia. All over the world, really. There's exactly. Some... Like for us uh, in Canada, for the longest time, it was "Idle No More." Yeah, but and "Idle No More" still it, sort of exists. It's it still does, especially with like what's going on, what's still going on in uh, in BC. Yeah. At the moment, so. And there were militarized police actions against indigenous folks in multiple Canadian cities this week alone. Yep. Um, yeah. It's. Uh, Anyways. We have hope. Yeah. We we do yeah. have hope for the future because. I, I can only speak for myself, but I do believe that generally humanity is good. And unfortunately, it just seems right now not the right people are in charge. Of a lot of places like it should be uh, including like leaders in the United States and in parts of like mm-hmm. quite a few parts of Canada and we we want that to change like we want this to be a massive change we want we want to end up in a I, I, I don't know I'm I'm speaking for you and I apologize but That's like okay. I want like we want this I feel like we're droning on a little. A little bit, but we want this to be the last time that I like protests like this have to happen. Yeah, it won't be though. It won't, but we're prepared. Yeah, 
hopefully. And on that bombshell. On that bombshell. Sorry for joining on, but <laughs> like we have a lot of opinions on this matter because we've heard, like, frankly, we've heard a lot of bullshit on social media, mm. and it's terrifying. So anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. So, that's uh, I. Do have a, a interesting fact. Oh, all right. Um, one of the founders of the Guinness World Records yeah. was assassinated by the provisional Irish Republican Army, <laughs> and I wondered why. Yeah. And I looked it up, and it turns out it's because he offered a fifty thousand uh, pound reward for anyone who could give up the identities of members of of, of uh, any of the Republican armies. Mm-hmm. And so the Provisional Irish Republican Army Command was yep. like, that sounds like a bounty. Which, in all fairness, it really is. Yeah. Uh, so they decided to take him out. And uh, they assassinated him. Hmm. I just, it was just like, po- it was one of those things that had popped up in one sentence. That's like, what, this man, like so-and-so, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Uh, one of the founders of the Guinness World Records was assassinated by the IRA. And you're just like... Huh. Why? <laughs> and then you look and you're just like, oh. Like, I mean, I don't condone that he was no. killed, obviously, but like, makes more sense when once you read, you read into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's I don't. One those, it's one of those one liners that makes you go, like, didn't expect to see that today. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like people just need to, like, you guys just need to go on to Reddit. Like, for those of you on Reddit, go on to Reddit and follow Today I Learned. Yeah. Because that's where I learn a lot of these, like, random facts. But, uh, Thank you for listening to us ramble. I don't, do you have any more thing more to? No, but uh, just the usual stuff. Uh, if you're feeling generous and are able, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, we there's lots of cool perks that we're, you know, would like to follow through on. So having patrons helps. Um, there's fun stuff there for you, including Kevin wallpapers. So like, yeah, yeah, for your phone. For your phone. Um, also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, uh, Panastoria Podcast at Panastoria Pod. Um, yeah. Yeah. Keep on our Facebook. We're gonna, I'm going to try and get get better at posting interesting stuff on there every day. Okay. So the next episode, yeah. What are we? Uh, another like, relevant topic in current events. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's <laughs> God damn it. The the uh, our 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 hooded friends or well, our hooded enemies. Yeah, don't say friends. No. When we say hello friends, like hello friends and enemies, this fall these fall under the enemies category. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, they wear pointy white hoods, and uh, you all know them as the Ku Klux Klan. And shockingly, well, not really that shockingly, they exist pretty strongly in Canada as well, and so we're going to uh, cover that, which there's actually been some clan-like activity recently in our own hometown, our own home province, Yeah, which is concerning. and Very concerning. Well, it's definitely concerning when the police are just like, we are concerned about this. Yeah, and you're like, oh, good. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, thank you for being concerned about yeah. white supremacy. Yes, thank so, you for But, um... Uh, Anyway, and then after that, I'm going to reveal what we're doing after that. We, we're going to lighten things up again yeah. a little bit. We're actually going to talk about the history of uh, Canadian comedy. Yeah, because we figure after this, we need something a little funny to lighten the mood. Yeah. A little comic um, relief. It's been, it's been a rough year. Everyone could use it. Oh, yeah. Big time. We're going to have to rearrange things around a little bit because it's been a month since our last episode. Yeah. It's been over a month. So we're going to have to rearrange. We were going to do Quebec nationalism as a finale two-parter but i think that's not going to be the finale anymore yeah uh because that's coming up pretty soon and those are october (laughs) releases 
God. We're really sorry we've been so bad at this, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us. We're going to try and do better this time around. Like Lindsay said, things are kind of going to be calming down. Um, don't have a lot going on. I have fucking nothing going on, personally, so... Um, we are perilously close to cracking 10,000 downloads. Yeah, we're getting really <laughs> close. We're... I said we would get to 10,000 by Christmas, and it looks like we're going to... By Thanksgiving, I hope. Like, sooner than that, probably Labor Day. I'll say Labor Day. Oh, that would be glorious. Yeah, well, we'll see. Anyway. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, yeah. So, just tune in, and, uh, you know, stay beautiful people. Be safe. Be kind to one another. Uh, consider donating to bail funds and support black businesses. Absolutely. Support local businesses as well. Yes. And support local black businesses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of those things. Yeah. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, Kevin says rar. This is Jonah. <laughs> Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good night. Lift every voice.